We're back. Oh, yes. Back in business. Unfinished business, episode 101. 101. Do you think they missed us? Yeah, yeah, I reckon so. I think the people have been devastated. They've just not known what to do with themselves since we've been gone. Having to uh, finish their own business. There's been like a big gaping hole in people's lives. I've seen, I've seen people devastated. They've had to leave Twitter and everything. And they've not <laughs> tweeted. They've been so upset that we haven't done unfinished business that they haven't been tweeting about unfinished business. And that's how I know that they're so devastated. I should see some changes soon then. So I don't normally do an official introduction to the show anymore, as you know, but I suppose I should introduce both of you, Jonathan Snook and Harry Roberts. Welcome to Unfinished Business. Thank you for having me. Well, this is the first episode of the new year, and it's the first with a bit of a new format. So before we get started, I just wanted to briefly mention some of the changes that I've made to the show, because things are going to be a little bit different this year, because... I know I bang on about researchers being really boring and user experience, but I did actually, I did a little survey and I did ask a few listeners, you know, not everybody, one or two, um, for some suggestions as to how we can improve the show. And people actually gave me some good comments and I listened. I did listen. That's good. First up, the schedule. This is episode 101. And so we did 100 on pretty much a weekly schedule since Anna Debenham and I started the show, which was no mean feat. Yeah, that's a lot, isn't it? A hundred. Oh, no. It, was, it actually became a little, bit, uh, a little bit too much in the end. So this year, what we're going to do is we're going to be bi-weekly, which I always get this mixed up, but apparently it's every two weeks. So I would, I would assume that bi-weekly means twice a week. I know. I get, it, I get mixed up all the time. What is it, anyway? Is it two weeks or is it twice a week? Yeah, bi-weekly, I think everybody understands that's once every two weeks. Well, good, because otherwise I'm going to be even, even in more trouble. I'm going to be on episode 400 next month. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to do that. So hopefully the idea behind slowing things down a little bit um, is that it's going to give me a little bit more time to work on some content. You know, not just, uh, not just kind of playing it by the seat of my pants, which hopefully will improve things. And, yeah, I've got some good guests lined up. Um, you know, one of the things that I... I asked. I asked a load of people what their favourite episodes were. And of course, everybody mentioned yours, Harry. Yeah, I'm sure. Everyone. It's the accent. You were just top of the list. My weird accent. You were just, <laughs> everybody wanted to hear about curd. Yeah, you got loads of people tuning in for a food programme only to find out it's actually uh, CSS. So a lot of people did say that the shows that they liked the best were the ones where we had two guests. Because, you know, there's some lively conversations went on. So what I thought was, me being me, why not just do that all the time? Why not always have two guests? So I'm going to try to do that starting today. And I've already lined up what I think are some really interesting pairings uh, for the new run. So over the next few months, there's going to be uh, Dan Maul and Jeffrey Zeldman. Nice. They're going to talk about uh, art direction and creative direction on the web, which something that I've been banging on about for a while. And then Stephen Hay and Trent Walton, I thought they'd be a good pairing, talking about designing in a browser and, you know, what that actually means. And then Rachel Andrews, Zoe Gillenwater, Andy Budd, Cameron Moll, Brad Frost, Tim Cadleck, nice responsive pairing there. 
Um, and I thought I'd get the band back together and get Paul Boag and John Hicks on, but maybe not to talk about Doctor Who. Hmm. No, it sounds really good. It's nice to hear you taking it um, very seriously. Um, I'm looking forward to this. It should be good. So then there's, you know, we're going to have some conversations going on. There'll be design and web and work and all these conversations to look forward to. But what I think kind of makes unfinished business a little bit different are the conversations that we have that just aren't about work. You know, because there are a lot of kind of single topic podcasts, a lot of, you know, quite serious podcasts. And I actually really enjoy just talking about apes and burgers and soap in hotel rooms and that kind of stuff. And, I, you know, some people like it. Some people get bored. They don't tune in. But, you know, sometimes people just, they want to skip past that. Sometimes, you know, the format has generally been that when we'll talk for the beginning part of the show about, you know, weighing in hotel kettles. And people don't know when the actual content's going to start boring people. They want to get to the, they want to get to the business stuff. So from now on, what I've decided to do is we'll keep the banter to a bit of an after-show segment. So bit of a treat. Boring people can just tune out if they want to. I mean, nobody who's sensible is going to skip anything. But, you know, if you're boring and you want to stop listening to conversations about Planet of the Apes, then, you know, you can tune out at the end of the show, which is good. And that's, that's the new format, and I hope everybody likes what we've done around the place. That sounds really good. This isn't your typical web design or development podcast, but I couldn't have two of the most well-known writers about CSS on the show um, without talking about CSS just for a little bit. And, you know, particularly, I suppose, how it's changed over the last few years. Oh, have you two actually met each other in person? No, we haven't. Not at all. I'm containing my fanboyism behind the screen at the moment. It's, uh... <laughs> yeah, no, wow. we've, we've never actually met in person. And in fact, until this podcast, we've never even spoken to each other before in, like, you know, voice to voice. I feel like a CSS Cupid. Yeah. <laughs> Making transatlantic matches. You're a bit like Nicole Sutherland's odd twin sons, aren't you, really? I just, <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> I'm sure she's not going to take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's crazy. We've, we've never actually met before. I'm surprised you haven't crossed over on the conference circuit at some point. Yeah. I kind of feel like our subject matter is uh, very similar. So, you know, it's kind of, I, I kind of sense that we're competing for a lot of the same kind of talks. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I imagine most conference organizers wouldn't have wouldn't want us both there to kind of give two similar topic talks. Is it because people think that you're actually the same person? Never been seen in the same room, have we? Exactly. Like me and Andy Budd or Michael and Janet Jackson. I think that's why Jonathan's got the impressive beard so that no one can really, really truly impersonate him. (laughs) You've got my secret. (laughs) No, it's interesting because, you know, you both write a lot about CSS or have done in the past Mm -hmm. and you've both, I don't know what the best way of describing it is. Methodology. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. I guess. I think that's a good term for it. Yeah, it is bizarre. I mean, um, uh, you would expect or you would assume that we'd, uh, cross paths, you know, discuss things, shared secrets together. But I, uh, yeah, it's, it's weird. I, I've only met Nicole Sullivan once, uh, Nicholas Gallagher once, um, and yeah, yeah, Jonathan Zero, which is, which is, which is sad. I'm, I'm crying right now. 
at least we've got you together on the show. Yeah. I, I was sitting there doing some work today, and I was actually doing what I do a lot of the day sometimes, which is to write CSS. And I'm finding it increasingly hard to, to keep up with things, to be honest. You know, the way that we use CSS now, the way that we produce it or apply it, you know, it's changed such a lot. And, you know, I was laughing to the girls in the office that, you know, I've written two books about CSS now or with CSS in it. And I don't actually think that I'd be able to write another one because things have become so, I don't know what, the, for a better word, technical, I suppose. You know, not only in the way that we author it, but also in the way that we, what we do with it afterwards. You know, we're much more concerned about things like performance and maintainability and all this other stuff, which, you know, to be honest, I never had to bother with before. Mm-hmm. It got me thinking, really, about CSS in general and my kind of use of it and accessibility, I suppose, in the widest sense. I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, web accessibility. I'm talking about actually being able to get to use something. And, you know, whatever it was, 10 years ago, I was able to learn about CSS because it was accessible to, you know, non-technical people like me you know it was the first language that i actually used and at the time you know i didn't know anything about css i actually didn't even know how to write html first time i looked under the uh, under the, the, the hood looked at the source code i was like what is that because you know i was used to table layouts mm-hmm. used to doing everything in dreamweaver and today you know css is more complex than it's on its own i mean you know i sort of began to lose track when it's when we started doing things like animations you know i could just about cope with nth child pseudo selectors but they, even those made my brain hurt but now god it's really complicated and and so is the way that we kind of write about it talk about it you know today especially when we're factoring in things like sas so i get a bit worried actually i mean i i worry that the way that we talk about css it's so technical it's so developery that I worry that we might have created some kind of barrier to entry for people that are really new to it. Mm-hmm. Have we made it less accessible? It's definitely something that uh, I've been thinking about a lot. I mean, for me, I feel like I have this advantage in that when I started on the web, uh, CSS wasn't even a thing. So all I really had to worry about was HTML. And then, like, started to learn some JavaScript, then started to learn some CSS. Like, I've had a lot of years to learn this stuff. And I can only imagine someone jumping into the industry now who hasn't written any HTML, CSS, or JavaScript and trying to understand what they need to actually build something. Uh, and it is really difficult to understand where to start. I had someone get in touch with me uh, yesterday and... um Really, really, really nice, polite guy from uh, Romania, and he got in touch saying, "Oh, I've, you know, I'm wanting to learn web development, and I'm, you know, wondering if you can mentor me, and I'd like to know about this, this, and this." And I just said, "Well, you know, how proficient are you currently? Like, you know, what do you know so far?" And he said, "Well, I started learning on the 20th of December, so we're talking like, you know, less. Well, like, what? Yeah, less. No, just over a month. He's been writing or learning HTML and CSS." And I asked him, well, what resources have you been looking at? What have you been doing? And he sent me some links at the amount of stuff in beginner tutorials. I mean, one of them was a thing that was split into day tasks, and it was day one, HTML, day two, CSS. It's like, you can't just, you can't just skip from <laughs> HTML to CSS. 
one day to the next. And by day three, it was your jQuery, and so you've missed out JavaScript completely. And it is, it's just bizarre. I'm really, I mean, I got into web development 2006-ish, and that was when CSS was kind of expected, and your table layouts weren't a thing, but things were still really simple. And every article was written from, like, a beginner's perspective. So it was still really easy for me to get into it. I would, I would absolutely hate to be joining the industry now. I would kind of tinker with HTML and CSS and I try to make something work and maybe I would write about it and share experiences. And, you know, often people would kind of, you know, in blog comments, reply back and stuff like that. And, you know, I learned a tremendous amount from people that were writing at the time, you know, Doug Bowman and Dan Cederholm and all these people that were doing exactly the same thing. You know, they were all writing about CSS. And nothing was terribly complicated at that point. I mean, the most complicated thing that, you know, you could possibly have was, I don't know, specificity or something. It wasn't yeah, that yeah. complicated. Whereas now, so much water seems to have gone under the bridge, but I, I honestly don't know where I would start. And a lot of the articles that we read or... Uh, certainly, you know, I, I look around, I still look around for books that have been written about CSS. And very, very few people seem to be catering for that kind of beginner level. I think one of the biggest problems is that, I mean, it's, it's obviously a good thing in many ways, but detrimental in others. Like, anyone can write a tutorial. Anyone can write about the web and how to build the web. Um, but there's no one really sort of monitoring any of it. And people always tend to discuss web development as if it's always the same problem. So you might write um, a tutorial aimed at beginners, but talking in a very one-size-fits-all manner. So you might have a thing saying, yeah, and you'll need to learn SAS and this and this. And it's like, well, no, 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 no. You've been doing this for 10 years. You use SAS because you chose to. And I just really think that because of the amount of people who can write blog posts, which is obviously a fantastic thing, more people sharing knowledge is always good. Um Everyone writes with their own slant on it, and I genuinely struggle to refer beginner developers to decent resources. Whenever anyone asks me for a site where, you know, how do I learn, how do I learn HTML and CSS? I've got no idea because people only ever seem to write from their their perspective these days. Um, You know, you think back, Andrew, to when you were writing your books, there were very few people actually writing about CSS at that point, which meant that the kind of, the quality was all fairly high. And the context must have all been fairly similar. You're all tackling, you know, weird transition from table layouts to CSS quirks or weird browser inconsistencies. I think now there's just a lot more um, noise than signal, unfortunately. I think the, the, the size of the topic seems to be way, way bigger than it used to be. I used to, you used to look at things, you could kind of get a handle on it. Um, and the other thing which is, occurred to me fairly recently is that you know when you see people sharing snippets which are often you know you'd often imagine them to be quite easy to to learn or pick up like they used to be and you go to something like code pen well no they're incredibly complicated you know just by being in that kind of format i find things complicated but you know you've got sas and javascript and all this kind of stuff mixed in with it and it just feels to be such a an uphill struggle well, it must be an uphill struggle to some people does it feel like there's an opportunity here uh, for people in our industry to step up and provide better resources? Well, yeah, I think there is. Um, I mean, nobody really pays much attention to W3 schools anymore, do they? Honestly? 
I think a lot of people will do because it's just so prominent. But yeah, I think it's slowly phasing out, isn't it? Um, one resource I'm a huge fan of is by a guy called Shea Howe. And we'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes, but he's got an entire subdomain. Uh, it's learn.sharehow.com. And he just starts at zero and works right from the beginning. He's a, he's a good developer talking about very, very beginner stuff. And he's given all that away for free. Um, but that's the only one resource I can really bring to mind, you know, off the top of my head for, for where to send beginners. Because I do worry that non-technical people, you know, people coming out of design school that we would expect by now, considering the tools and the resources, and let's face it, because the browsers themselves are so much better now, you know, we don't have to fight browser quirks anywhere near as often as we used to, that non-technical people should just be able to use CSS. Yeah, well, like going back to what you said about, um, you know, demos that people share on CodePen or whatever, I always get kind of a almost an annoyance when I see someone's made a demo and they've shared it and it's done in SAS or it's done in CoffeeScript unnecessarily. Yeah, because SAS is an implementation detail. Unless your demonstration is showing how to do X in SAS, you don't, don't show the example in SAS, right? It clouds the whole point of the, of the demonstration. If you're trying to show how to do, do something in CSS, just write it in CSS. You know, the SAS bit is a complete implementation detail and it's, it's usually completely irrelevant for what you're trying to demonstrate. Yeah, unless you're trying to demonstrate how to do something specifically in SAS. I do think you're right there, John. I think that there's a real opportunity for actually producing beginner's material. I mean, Sue said this to me, you know, when I was sort of talking about, you know, should I do a book, should I not do a book? And she was saying, listen, don't forget that you don't have to talk to your peer group. There's every year there's a whole new wave of designers and developers coming into the industry and they are still struggling with the same things that you struggled with 10 years ago. In fact, probably more so. Yeah. And I think what uh, Harry was saying in that we are dealing with a number of different problems at different levels. You know, I think back to what I started out with was a lot of blog designs. It was homepage inside. Uh, and that's different than a lot of the projects that I work on now, which are these complex systems. And I don't think I would take someone just learning the basics and throwing them into these complex problems, you know, starting them off simple, building up to the more complex, um, ideas. Some of the things that uh, I've been kind of considering is that there's this like two level uh, or two tiers of knowledge and that the basic is just learning how to do something. Uh, and then on top of that becomes learning why to do something. And that, I think having both of those things uh, is really important. Yeah, completely agree. I've got a friend who uh, he says that, um, rules are the children of principles. That's it. Rules are the children of principles. A friend of mine, Jamie Mason, JS engineer from the UK. And that kind of deals with the same thing, right? You teach people the rules first. This is, you know, just, just follow this rule. This is the easiest way to do something. This is just doing something. Then the next level up would be, okay, you did this because of this. Now we're going to tell you about the, the what's and the why's and, and fully understand the principles behind it. And that's what gives you the power to then make those decisions yourself. And I think that we do need to try and start off by telling people, this is a div, this is an ID, this does this, this does this, and have that super entry-level information, then we need to be able to categorize the next level of knowledge as, okay, we told you about IDs, now this is why you wouldn't use them in you know, a project of any reasonable size, or this is why you would do this, or I definitely think there's some uh, some merit in that kind of two-tier system. I used IDs today, mate. Well, I'm going to hang up this call. 
<laughs> no, it, they were for fragment identifiers. They weren't for CSS classes. Way, that's all good. There we see. No, it, <laughs> it really is hard, I think, to find an article today about CSS that's not actually written in SAS or less, less so. Hmm. You know, I use SAS. I've been using SAS today. I think it's fabulous a tool once you understand CSS itself. But again, I'm just worried that people have been encouraged to jump straight into SAS and they're not learning those basics of CSS first. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I, that's a huge concern of mine. Um, my, my opinion is use SAS once you've reached your limit with CSS. Like SAS is, SAS is the 11, right? SAS is turning things up to 11. And I'm worried that people aren't just, are not getting the correct mileage out of their CSS or not understanding how to get the correct mileage out of it. Um, you see people doing things in SAS and it's like, well, you've kind of just invented twice as much complexity and, and, you know, all this other stuff purely because you, well, probably because you don't understand the low lying actual problem. Um, I dealt with a specific example recently. I saw an example of a, it was a mixing that you passed in an argument or two and it would spit out every single like, um, it was a, it spat out every single attribute selector for form inputs. So square bracket type equals date, square bracket type equals email, so on and so on. Spat out every single one. And I was like, well, if you just think about CSS, like forget SAS completely, think about CSS, you could use a class of dot input to target all of those. And I mentioned that to this person who'd made this SAS demo and they were like, oh yeah, I didn't think of that. You replaced about 20 lines of mixing and about 50 selectors with one class. And it's this worrying tendency, oh yeah, it's worrying, yeah, tendency to just leap at the most complex solution first. I'm not a fan. I see that a lot in, um, junior developers, uh, this, um, over architecting of, uh, problems and really trying to recognize that, you know, there are often more simpler solutions. And, uh, I have seen over the years, people look to SAS thinking that SAS, uh, or any kind of preprocessor is actually saving them the architectural problems that they're solving those kinds of issues. Uh, but in actuality, when they look at the compiled output, that it's actually much more complex. Um, it's harder to debug, uh, than uh, a much simpler solution, uh, just from the outside. Yeah. And I often think with uh, things like SAS, the, the idea of rubbing Peter to pay Paul, you know, this idea of taking complexity from one area and just putting it completely, just not getting rid of the complexity, just just moving it, but all in the idea of, oh yeah, but it's SAS now, it's automated, therefore it must be simpler. Prime example of that was um, I was running a workshop out in Zurich last year, and I was showing a demo on my or, or on the screen. It was just a screenshot from uh, some CSS from my site, and I've got four different background images which are all toggleable via a class. It was .bg01, bg02, 34. And I'd written out longhand, you know, bg1, curly brace, background, URL, slash img, slash 01.jpg, 02. But, you know, so I'd written it out longhand because it took no time at all. Used Vim to do it, you know, duplicate the lines, edit the numbers. Took me maybe 15 seconds to write these four lines. And uh, some guy in the front row just said, 
Do you know, you could have used a loop in SAS to do that automatically. I said, yeah, okay, I could have spent two minutes writing a loop, uh, testing it, debugging it, making sure that if anyone else passed anything, nothing's going to go wrong, hoping that the next person who picks it up can understand SAS, can reason about the loop and work out what it's doing. And and it's just kind of, you know, yeah, like I said, robbing Peter to pay Paul. It's moving the complexity from one area to another um, for no real gain. In fact, the opposite, probably a, a net loss. You know, takes a little more time, harder to understand. Specificity is always the thing that I see people doing wrong when they're using SAS. I mean, obviously, nesting selectors inside selectors inside selectors. Yeah. What can we do to actually teach people how to use, you know, how do we teach people what specificity is? I mean, apart from my silly Star Wars chart and a few other things that are kind of out there. Yeah, I mean, I'm guilty of this. Every article I open, or every article I write, I open with, as we know, specificity is about. And that's me assuming a knowledge level of my audience. That's me assuming that everyone knows why I'm saying that. Well, uh, you know, I've written a book about CSS that, you know, the, I think the concepts that, I'm not to be smart, but uh, the stuff that Harry and I talk about is often about just simplifying our approach, you know, without having to, the, to use these complex selectors. And, you know, it, it's funny how in some ways it's actually a step back. You know, yes, the browsers are giving us all of this new opportunity, uh, all this new functionality. And yet when you look at uh, the approaches um, that we talk about these days is simplify it in such a point that you don't tend to run into as many of those specificity issues. Um, you know, the, the we're trying to eliminate a lot of the problems that we've run into over the years, which I think is, uh, you know, important. We, we don't need to have these, these complex things that, you know, these long selectors that we just continue to make longer and longer. And uh, I'm sure we've all seen some horrible examples of stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Well, I've put a whole load of horrible examples like that in my books in the past because I was completely at the opposite end of the spectrum to you two for a very long time. And I remember watching one of Nicole's uh, OOCSS talks for the first time where she was talking about putting, I can't remember what it was now, but it was like class of H1 on an H1 or something similar like that. And, you know, it made my palms itch. I was like, gosh, you know, the reason why these selectors exist is so that we don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. And and if you look at the code that is in something like uh, transcending CSS or hard boiled or some of my other you know examples, I used to go to the extremes not to put a class on something. You know the amount of kind of descendant selectors or child selectors or attribute selectors or whatever that I would use. And it took me a while actually because I only ever used to work on kind of small scale stuff. And it wasn't until I started working on some larger scale projects a few years ago where there was a lot of changes. You know, I had to keep coming back to the same HTML over and over again that I realized that, hang on a minute, there might be something in this. And over, the, over that couple of years, I thought, okay, no, actually, yeah, just step back from the attribute selectors just a little bit. Yeah, I think we've got, um, and you can observe in almost anything this industry does, because we're so young, we've got... Um, a real tendency to overcorrect. We're like a pendulum. So in the 90s, we had everything in the markup, right? The content and the style all in the markup. Then we got CSS, and all of a sudden the pendulum swung completely the opposite way. So now we move everything as much as we can out of the markup into the CSS um, because we can now. So all of a sudden we've got super lean markup, and we've just moved the complexity elsewhere. 
And I think now we're, that pendulum's starting to swing back towards, right, okay, a kind of a sane middle ground where it's like, we need, obviously, to keep our HTML not ridiculous. We don't want any inline styles in there or any uh, tables for layout. Um, we want our CSS to stay fairly sane and accepting the fact that, yeah, more classes, you know, fairly judicious and pragmatic approach. But I just think it's a case of uh, classic overcorrection. We're still coming out the other side of it. I used to write some ridiculous stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, so, I mean I've, I'm mean, i sure we all did. Jonathan, I'm sure, you know, you didn't always write smacks like CSS. No. Actually, my blog still suffers. I haven't updated my blog since before I wrote the book. And it's interesting to look back and, like, why do I have a selector that is, like, just way longer than it needs to be. Like comment author, it was like comments, comment, uh, meta, author, author name. And I'm like, wait a second, how many author <laughs> names do I have on my website that I need to have this selector that this long for my site? So my favorite rebuttal, because I mean, there are still people who really, really hold on to this idea of super clean markup and like, you know, um, you know, not, not putting anything all in your HTML. And, um, and they say because, or that their sort of, their defense is, well, putting a class in your HTML is, is putting styling information in your markup, and that's a bad thing. So they'll write a selector like header, nth of type, two, chevron, nav, first child, or whatever, in their CSS. So that's just putting DOM information in their style sheets. You know, they're just, again, it's this, this idea of robbing Peter to pay Paul. They just, Instead of putting style information in the DOM, they're now putting DOM information in their styles. And that's one of the best little um, rebuttals I have to make people realize that, ah, okay, right, if I really cared about that, I wouldn't do it the other way around either, and it kind of starts to soften people up. Do you get people writing to you, John, pointing out these things? that like, oh, you don't use this on your own website? Thankfully, no. Um, and I don't know why, because I definitely have crappy code. Um, so I've, I've really lucked out. Thank you for not checking my code. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's nice. But I remember you used to get back into old days. You would get emails. Uh, Jeffrey Zeldman would always complain about people that would write to him and say you you haven't encoded an ampersand. Well, I mean, remember XHTML and making sure that everything was completely standards compliant. All the validators that we used to use. Yeah, I know. And people would put the the website validator link. Um, at the bottom of the page and people would click it and they would email you if there was a particular yes. blog post that wasn't valid. I, I've had that before. I've had that. I remember <laughs> you, you claim to be a valid XHTML, but I think you'll find, you know, I used to write some ridiculous stuff about CSS. Um, and at the time, something that, you know, we would probably think of as mundane now, like just making tabs from list items or, uh, faux columns, you know, making making a background colour go all the way down to the bottom of the page, independent of the you know the column height, that kind of thing. That stuff, God, that stuff made it onto a list apart. You would get Doug Bowman's sliding doors yeah. or faux columns. That was that was the level that we were at now, that we were at then. And I used to really like those. You know, I suppose I'm nostalgic, but I used to really like those blog days where we could share something about CSS. Um, and, you know, sometimes we were right and sometimes we were wrong. But today, not that I think that I've got much to contribute about CSS anymore anyway, but I'm much, much more reticent about 
writing about that stuff because I think that there are way more people out there that know more than I do. And I'm actually, to be honest, I'm a bit, I'm a bit fearful of looking foolish. You know, I don't want to write something and people go, oh, well, you know, what an idiot. You should do it like this. Mm. Um, and I'm a bit, you know, it concerns me a little bit because I don't want other people, new people who are maybe starting off writing CSS like we did, to not feel comfortable about writing and sharing. I mean, am I just being an old fool or what? Do you feel that that hesitation comes from the fact that many people already consider you a CSS expert, so you don't want to come across looking anything less than you are? It's possible, I suppose. Yeah, you've kind of made a road for your own back, writing several books and then, uh, yeah, kind of set the bar high for yourself. I haven't written anything useful about CSS in five years. Um, you know, buy the last book, people, because, you know, there's still some relevant CSS in there. But no, I'm not the guy that writes about CSS anymore. But I don't know. I I just wonder. I I don't know whether there is this kind of culture of just writing and sharing things in the same way that they used to be. Yeah, I know a lot of people do express that fear uh, of wanting to share and feeling like either somebody's already done it before. uh, And I think that is a fear that a lot of people have to just get over. And I I know with myself, I I certainly don't write nearly as much as I used to. uh, But um, the fact is, is that even if one person has already written about it before, you may be able to write about it slightly differently where somebody will get it when the other person uh, might not have been able to explain it as well, uh, or they're just going to find your resource before they found the other one. And just having more resources, talking about this stuff, talking about people, uh, even if they don't have the expertise yet, I tried to do this, this is the problem I ran into, and this is how I solved it. And there may be a million other blog posts saying exactly the same thing, uh, but I think that all of those voices are important. And I know that when we started off, you know, I think back to like 2003 when I think blogging was at its heyday and really having the opportunity to have that community of sharing to understand and dig into problems. Uh, I think those things are important uh, and being able to share that uh, helps other people learn from those mistakes too. Maybe I just kind of make it more than it should be in my own mind. Maybe I just build it up. I've noticed that I, I write far less than I ever used to because I've kind of got myself into a situation where everything I write now has to have kind of, again, it's completely a me thing. I don't want to write anything that feels disposable. I don't want to write something. So you go back three, well, actually, no, maybe four or five years on my site, you'll find how to make double column lists with one UL. You know, you know those kind of articles where it's just a few lines of CSS that help you do a really specific thing. Um, but since I started working product four years ago, I've, my, my articles transitioned towards how to manage specificity at scale or whatever, whatever. And I feel like, yeah, I've kind of made a road for my own back where I feel that everything I write needs to be equally, you know, grandiose and needs to be like, um, a new thing that no one's written about before. And I think that happens to a lot of developers. I assume it must do where you feel like you can't write about here's how to do X with, you know, I don't know, an SVG. I also think that, you know, back, back, back in the day, you know, the sliding door stuff, that was a result of developers having to be really resourceful. Uh, a lot of the stuff, you know, sliding doors and, you know, ways of getting PNGs to work in IE6 was a result of just weird, weird things that developers had to put up with. And we don't really have, we're kind of spoiled nowadays. 
I still think, though, that there is a really good opportunity to write and learn about CSS because particularly with responsive design now, this is, you know, I, I thought I was done with CSS a few years ago. I thought, right, that's it. I'm never going to mention the, the letters again. <laughs> um, and then with the whole responsive thing, all of a sudden we start to, uh, you know, we, we can get excited again about writing style sheets and actually kind of gave things a new lease of life for me anyway. And now there's so much CSS shapes and animations and all this kind of stuff, which is actually really creatively interesting. So I think it's a good time maybe to, to be doing some of the stuff like we used to, because I'm still learning. I'm still learning every day. I think, I think we've probably got a good opportunity for people to really start specializing as well. You know, you've got people like me and Jonathan who do large scale architectural stuff. Uh, then you've got Anna Tudor who does insane 3d CSS math experiments. Um, so yeah, I guess you're right. You know, the kind of stuff, the, the shape stuff that's emerging. Oh yeah. Rich Landrews, absolutely earning grid layout at the moment. Um, yeah, uh, Zoe is absolutely like the, the one to go to for Flexbox stuff. So I guess, yeah, in that respect, we've got a lot more opportunity than perhaps I realised. And Sarah Swaydan, who I'm working with at the moment, she's uh, helping us to do the new header on the stuff site. Oh, cool. Um, because she's really, really, really good at SVG. Yeah, really um, good. And you know, doing some amazing things for us. Um, and yeah, she basically owns the whole CSS shapes and regions area, which is f- phenomenal. And she's writing books about it as well. I mean, can we talk about writing books for a minute? I think I'm the only person on the call who's never written a book. How many have you written, John? Uh, I have been involved in three books. Because you did a bunch of co-authors as well, didn't you? Yeah, the first one I did was uh, The Art and Science of CSS, which was a multi-author book. Uh, so I only did one chapter in that one. It's relatively easy talking about tables for data and styling those. <laughs> that was SitePoint, wasn't it? Uh, it was, yeah. Um, and that was a nice, it was a nice little book to work on. I think on. I might actually have a copy behind me. Let me just have a look around. I do have that book on my shelf. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I contributed to um, the new perspectives on web development for Smashing Magazine a couple of years ago. So I got the uh, the first chapter in that. But yeah, don't have a an actual book to my name. Well, you, you wrote a chapter in uh, Smashing Book Four. Didn't yeah, you know? yeah, that's the one. That's the yeah. It was New Perspectives yeah. was its full title. Nobody knows that. They just think it's Smashing Book. That 4. was the one I tech edited, if I'm not mistaken. Well, you know, I did two reasonably meaty tomes that included CSS. They weren't CSS books. You know, I didn't want them just to be about CSS, but there was you know, there's a fairish about the CSS in them. Um, and eight or nine years ago. This is the last time I can remember people really doing this. People, they wrote big, massive CSS anthologies. You know, I've still got Simon Collison's beginning CSS on my shelf because I wrote the forward to it. And Ethan Marcotte and a bunch of others did a co-author. It was called Professional CSS for Rocks. It was a massive, great, uh, I don't know, 500 pages or something. (laughs) Uh, there was a guy, Tommy Olsen, uh, a, I think he was a Swedish developer, that literally wrote something called, cool. I think it was a, a big CSS anthology, where literally it went through every selector, every property. It was just one massive encyclopedia about CSS. And people don't seem to write big books like that anymore, certainly not about CSS. Everybody seems to be writing these kind of uh, smaller formats. So... Is there a place 
for for big books now, or are these pocket guides or book apart formats? Are they are they the standard? I think if you're going to write a huge book, you'd have to um, you'd have to generalize it somewhat just to make sure it's it's relevant. A lot of people are hesitant to buy books now because they know for a fact they're going to go out of date quite quick. So they probably want to buy an affordable one they can read quickly that might be relevant for the next six to eighteen months, right? So I think it's a lot of risk aversion on the side of the publisher, the author, and the customer. You know, that's why we want just digestible. This is going to cost me, you know, nineteen dollars, and I don't mind if it's out of date in in a, in a year's time. I think if you're going to write a massive book, you probably want to write a coffee table style book, like a completely you know thirty thousand foot overview of just general principles for for web design and development. So um, yeah, rather than saying always use these kind of selectors because X Y Z. Uh, maybe just say whenever you write CSS, always try and ensure you can modify it quickly later on. So a more principle-led book would be the only form I would think appropriate for a, a large-scale book anymore. There's just too much risk involved in, in writing a 500-pager these days. It takes such a long time. Would you write another book, John? Uh, I would, yeah. Well, I mean, so wh- why were books that big? And I think a lot of it has to do with how people shopped for books. I mean, we went into bookstores and you, books needed to stand out. It's, it's kind of like SEO, right? Uh, the second book that I wrote was titled Accelerated DOM scripting with Ajax, APIs, and libraries. Like, basically, the publisher <laughs> needed to throw as many keywords into that as possible to, you know, catch people's eyes. It had to be thick enough so that it was noticeable on the shelf. And I think that when you look at the, uh, uh, I think it's the Rocks books that are like seven, eight, nine hundred pages, these big red books, right? They're designed to stand out and they're, they're designed to be that big. You pretty much had to write a ton of stuff just to uh, fill the pages. You know, they're just, they're trying to cut down as many trees as they can <laughs> and put them on the shelf so people notice them. Uh, and I think that, you know, when we look at uh, a book apart or five simple steps that the way those books are sold, they don't need to be that big uh, to get people to notice them. And I think that as an author, you can actually get to the point a lot faster. You can narrow down your focus to a very specific thing. Uh, I think if I had to write smacks with a publisher, they probably would have come back to me and said, okay, that's great that you talked about architecture, but can you explain everything else about CSS so that we can yeah. add another 400 pages to your yeah, book? Yeah, that's a really good point. The fact that you self-published allowed you to stay very on point and very focused, but I imagine that a publisher would just be like, yeah, that's that's not enough for us to warrant sending this to print. We could have a whole conversation, actually, about self-publishing um, because, well, I haven't done it yet. I mean, I, I purposefully went with a smaller publisher the last time, and I think if I was going to do another thing, it would probably be self-published this time. I would um, self-publish. I'm going to pester Jonathan at some point about self-publishing, because when I write a book, not if, when, I'm going to say it, when I write a book, I'll, I'll self-publish it, I reckon. Well, you and Rachel Andrew, I think, have written some really good resources. Yeah, I feel like I... Now, obviously, I'm speaking from my own perspective of one, which just happened to be fairly successful. So, you know, as a result of that, I'm like, yes, everybody should self-publish. I mean, if I can do it, anybody can do it. And, uh, you know, I have uh, a coworker of mine, um, 
Jesse Stormer uh, is a Unix Rails developer, uh, which to me felt like a fairly uh, niche uh market and yet he did incredibly well uh with his self-published book as well so it's i think there is a lot of opportunity um you know to uh create um your own community uh, get your ideas out there and enjoy the process i mean i i just love the process of self-publishing i thought it was a lot of fun you've done really well you've done way way better than i have at keeping that brand going because when did you write the smacks book uh, it was uh, three and a half years ago now. And you're still doing workshops and other things that are based on that brand. I am. I really thought that things were going to die off after a year because that's what technical books do, right? They they kind of disappear and nobody talks about them ever again. Uh, so I really did think things were going to die down. And uh, I, you know, some people that were like, hey, do you want to do a workshop? Uh, I was like, well, you know, I don't think anybody's really going to be interested in, in it anymore. And yet three years on, uh, well, I mean, people are still buying the book. So <laughs> things have worked out well. The whole point of Smacks is that you can make projects last for like, you know, three to eight years or whatever. The, the subject matter itself is about dealing with persistence and, and you know, longevity. So I think, yeah, you, you'll always be able to sell something that's designed to last a long time. I got lucky with it because it is very opinion based. So it's just, here is my opinion, which, uh, you know, hasn't really changed a whole lot in three years. And I think that the, because it is just like this opinion based thing can continue. And I still think that it will likely have life, uh, for a couple more years until other people start to write about, uh, scalable, uh, maintainable CSS, large scale projects. I don't know if anybody's going to write another book on that topic at some point. Yeah. I mean, it's very, very good as well. I mean, I think you, um, Credit by credit, Stuart Smacks is, I've always said, one of the best things I've ever read around, um, certainly around UI development. Um, I, I, um, thank you. I'm not surprised it's done as well as it, I am not surprised it has done as well as it has. Well, we've all made a living, I suppose, nice little earner on the side, apart from the day job, writing about and, uh, and teaching CSS as well, because I'm off to Australia in, in a month. Part of what I'm doing is I'm teaching responsive CSS. So I'm actually teaching Flexbox and CSS shapes and some of those other properties, actually, that I think are really useful in terms of reducing our reliance on other assets. Things like border image, which I'm constantly surprised. I have a room full of 30 people and I'll say to, you know, we're not talking beginner developers, you know, usually very qualified people. And I'll say... Who's used border image and nobody puts their hand up? Yeah, my hand's down. I would literally have to go and Google everything about border image right now. Whereas actually, it's a really, really, really useful property. Um, and I think one of the problems is that people don't necessarily have an application for it or know immediately where they would use it. And I think my job still as a designer is to come up with ways of using these things. So I might not talk about them from a performance point of view. And, you know, to be frank, I don't really care about performance most of the time. I just want to make something that looks amazing and, you know, is, is as lightweight as possible. And things like border image, I get really excited about figuring out little kind of creative challenges for things. You run physical workshops, Harry. I do. Jonathan, you you still run your... In fact, was it this week you did a Smacks workshop online? Well, I have 
two things. So I do still do the in-person workshops. Um, I have three scheduled this year. Uh, but uh, what I did uh, last year in coordination with Front End Masters is we recorded the workshop that I did uh, for Front End Masters. And thankfully, we worked out a, an arrangement where I could uh, sell the video um, on my own site. So I've actually taken the full day workshop, bundled it up into streaming video that anybody can check out anytime they want. So was that recorded live in front of the audience or did you record it separately? Yeah, no, it was uh, in front of a in front of a live studio audience. Was there canned laughter? <laughs> Just gonna, yeah, all my jokes they nailed. They were on it's like par. An episode of the Fonz. <laughs> now I've been wondering about workshops recently. In fact, I had uh, in fact well, I won't say who it was, but some, somebody that we know um, that's about to embark on doing some workshops for the first time contacted me a, a couple of weeks ago to talk about the style of workshop that she thought she might do and, you know, how it might be different from what other people do. Mm-hmm. She was asking basically what makes a good workshop. And what I've been doing over the last year or two is I've actually been providing a whole load of kind of pre-made examples that people can just kind of play along with as they go through the day. But rather than people breaking off into groups and, you know, well, we're going to break for half an hour and you're going to write a page. I've been doing a lot of work actually in the web inspector. And, you know, just if you change this class or if you change that property and people can kind of see how things work um, and what happens when they just make a, you know, a quick class name change and Flexbox flips things the other way around or whatever. Um, and I find that really successful. Mm-hmm. Workshops scared me in the beginning because when I, I felt like, okay, a conference talk is 45 minutes on average. Uh, and I had trouble, uh, in the beginning really tr- trying to fill 45 minutes. Whereas you take a whole day, like how do you get through, you know, it's just, that's a lot of information to cover in one day. Uh, and it was actually when I was working at Yahoo, we decided to do, uh, these really short, uh, workshops, like two, three hours. Um, and we decided to cover just like, maybe half a dozen CSS properties. And I thought we were going to be struggling for time. And I realized like just the, uh, the amount of effort for, you know, people that have never done this before to actually write this code and then test it and then go around and talk to people. Um, that's, a, that's a, that takes time. And, uh, what started off as like a two hour turned into a three hour turned into a four hour. And I realized that like a full day workshop, when you actually have people working, um, is, uh, one, it's a great way for, for them to learn and understand the pitfalls and the limits of certain, uh, techniques. Uh, but it also is a great way to fill a day and, um, I found that actually doing a full day workshop isn't that hard anymore. Yeah, I'm the same. Um, I was terrified of my first workshop and it didn't help that I asked someone cause he'd done like a couple of workshops before and I was just, I happened to be with him at a conference. I said, Oh dude, by the way, you do workshops. Can you tell me about, you know, any tips for doing a full day one? And all, all I remember him saying really was, oh, well, you'll be knackered. You'll be, oh, just eight hours, you will be exhausted. I said, well, that's not really helping. That's not helping at all. Um, so I went into my first one terrified that it was going to ruin me and I just wouldn't be able to do it. But yeah, eight hours disappears. And, you know, you set people off doing their own tasks and you can, you can go around and meet people. Um, but yeah. It's one of my favorite things to do, actually, workshops. I'm really looking forward to, not just going to Australia, but I'm actually really looking forward to getting back and teaching again. See, my my favorite style of workshop are uh, for private clients, purely because. What's the sort of, a public workshop, you know, like a conference, a ticketed event workshop, um, 
they're a lot more affordable, you know, per person. You buy a ticket and you can go. Uh, so they're a lot more affordable for companies than getting a private workshop run. But the problem for me, or, or the thing I like least about them, is that you have to kind of talk very broadly, right? You can't really solve individual problems for people. No. Um, and I feel really guilty about that. So someone comes and they might have a really specific thing that's wrong with their app at the moment, and they're hoping to work that out. But there's also, you know, 16 other people in that room who have got an equal amount of my time. And I was really bad. Like, I, I would love to help each person as thoroughly as possible individually, but it's just not practical. So my favorite thing in the world is, because whenever I do a, a workshop for a private client, it's always completely bespoke. So what I'll do is I'll get on a Skype call with a few key members of the team two weeks before the uh, workshop's set to happen. I'll ask them everything they need to know. And, you know, I'll ask them, you know, what do you want to learn? What are you struggling with? Et cetera, et cetera. And I just, I just love the productivity of having eight hours solving actual problems for people. I absolutely, I just cannot believe my job is to do that. And um, so, yeah, doing private workshops is is just for me, it's just the best. What are the differences between doing a physical workshop and then an online workshop? Apart from the obvious, it uh, well the the pacing, right? Like an online workshop. So I've done two variations. I've done an online workshop where um, people could ask questions, I could present, but uh, the problem there is that you don't see reactions. I can make a joke and I can only assume people are laughing. Um, I... Uh, it just, it, you don't get quite the same personal, uh, feel and it feels like I'm just, I'm talking to, uh, a blank wall. Um, with the, uh, other, uh, Smacks, uh, workshop that I did uh, with front end masters, I mean, because it was in a room and I was actually talking to people, um, that actually went really well. Um, but it's still essentially a, um, a, six hour presentation versus, um, you know, being able to work with people through a specific problem. Like, Hey, I see, you know, the name of convention that you're using here, uh, you might want to consider this or the way you've, uh, created this component. Have you thought about these concerns and, um, being able to work with people one-on-one and having them finally grasp the concept, um, is fantastic. And I do enjoy that. Yeah. I, um, I've never done an online workshop and I've been asked about running them a few times. Um, because one thing I've learned since working for myself is we price ourselves in our kind of our own bubble, right? So all my prices are based on living in England where the cost of living is quite high. So I get a lot of people from, you know, less wealthy countries who just cannot afford to, you know, going to a conference for them might be an entire month's salary. So it's a really common request to do online workshops. So I've asked a few people, um, and they've all said the exact same thing. You know, it's really difficult to present into a screen and you can't get any kind of rapport, you can't get any feedback. And everyone said it, they've got the same kind of awkward speaking into the ether, don't really know how anything's going down. And, and it just feels that the thought of it sounds really uncomfortable. So I haven't, for that reason, I haven't really thought about doing one. I haven't done an, an online workshop, but I've done an online conference talk. And I didn't get on with that either. Were you live streaming to the event? Yes. And I think that I had, I made the mistake of having the chat room open. So, you know, people were asking questions or making comments or something, mm. which, which was a big mistake. But I, I certainly wouldn't want to repeat that, uh, 
that experience. Which what were sounds... you recording the other day, John? You were recording something with your new auto cue machine that you've made. Uh, so that was, uh, well, that was a few, few days ago. So the workshop that I had with, uh, front end masters when they provided the video, uh, because I wanted like an intro for each section, uh, I decided to actually set up my own, uh, sort of recording studio at home. I basically grabbed all the lights around my house, brought them into a room. So I got like balanced lighting. Uh, I set up my, uh, iPhone to actually do the video production, uh, grab my iPad to do the teleprompter, uh, set it up in such a way that it looked like I was still looking at the camera, uh, set up the, the road podcaster to actually record the audio. Uh, so I essentially built my own little home studio so that I could actually do the, uh, intro and outro videos, uh, for, for the workshop stuff. And then I, uh, spliced that all together, uh, exported all the video, realized my audio levels were off. So I had to adjust everything, re-export it again. It was eight hours each time I needed to export that, uh, video, which was horrible. <sighs> Uh, I recommend not doing video production on an 11 inch MacBook Air. <laughs> well, we need to talk to Paul Boag because he's been doing a lot more video work recently. And some of his videos look really slick, apart from the fact they've got Paul in them. Apart from that, they look fantastic. <laughs> High quality. Cameron Mall has done some, he was playing around with doing video work as well. And he had like the ring lights and everything. And I thought about like, splurging for doing something like that, buying the ring lights and just getting like a really nice professional, maybe get a makeup artist. Uh, but yeah, I decided to go cheap and do everything myself, which has kind of been the smacks way. Pretty much everything I've done, uh, around smacks has been just like, bootstrap. you know what? I'm going to, yeah, bootstrap everything. Let's see what I can figure out. Uh, I remember, uh, I used uh, a custom font, uh, for my ebook and the licensing, uh, essentially I, Bought the license for like the first hundred books. And then once I was getting close to selling a hundred books, I contacted the guy and said, can I buy a license for like another 500 more? And yep. Okay. And, and essentially just continued to buy more licensing for the font until eventually I could afford an unlimited license and use that so that I could have the embedded font in, in every single book. And I, I, I enjoyed that. I've learned about how to do custom fonts inside EPUB and, uh, hopefully, you know, people, enjoyed that little bit of smacks inside their uh, iPads. It all looked very professional. One thing I've been considering, and only really loosely considering, um, whenever I do a workshop privately at a company, um, yeah, I, I always answer as many questions as I can um, at the end of the day. So I'd normally, you know, I never leave a company straight away. I will always see if anyone wants to grab dinner or go for drinks so I can answer any questions that fall out of the back of the day. But obviously after you're gone... I always tell clients, yeah, email me any questions, it's fine, I'll try and help, you know, for as long as I can. But one thing I thought might be an idea is I was thinking about buying some fairly affordable, you know, not going crazy, but an affordable, um, like, video camera and tripod, taking that to client workshops, setting it up in the corner of the room and recording all eight hours of the day, and then for an extra however many hundred quid, like, I don't know how much extra I'd charge, saying to the client, oh, and by the way, here's the video of the day, keep that, and, you know, anything you've forgotten from the workshop, refer back to this. Think there's any legs in that kind of idea? I think there is legs in it, but there's also legs in it for people that may obviously not have been able to attend the workshop in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I did a workshop for Etsy, and I believe that they actually streamed the workshop to other offices around the country, maybe even the globe, that people couldn't attend. 
I've been interested recently. In fact, I talked to a bunch of video producers at the end of last year uh, to try to just get started the idea of recording my current CSS workshop. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd quite like to do it as a production. You know, I'd quite like to, to gr- have a, a nice venue. Well, you do things properly, though, don't you, Andrew? Some kind of trendy <laughs> warehouse building, and I would have, you know, an, an, you know a, a, a smiling studio audience or something. Yeah. I would like to do something like that, because people do say, you know, when are you going to do your workshop in America? And, I've, you know, I've never done... I think I've done one workshop in America after all these years. Why is that? I don't know, really. I, I do very little work in America. I reckon it's because they've got a big enough pool to uh, hire from without having to get Europeans in. Yeah, it was. I th- there was a sort of a catalogue of events. Really, I did some early on with uh, New Riders, which kind of rode on the coattails of the Transcending CSS book. Uh, we were going to do some hard-boiled workshops with uh, an event apart, but that didn't pan out for for several reasons. So those things didn't happen. So actually, I'm really looking forward to getting back over there with Smashing Conference because I'm going to be in LA and I'm going to be in New York this year. So, yeah, I would just really like to have a nicely produced, you know, well-filmed, well-lit, well-edited workshop that, you know, like you've done, you can sell it, you know, sell it in chunks, sell it in two-hour increments or whatever. That's been a plan of mine for ages. I should have done it off the back of hardboard if I'd have been a businessman (laughs) 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 or I'd have been thinking strategically about these kind of things. I would have done it years ago, but, you know. We live and we learn. I suppose... We should wrap up this segment of the show. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this out there in listener land. This is the first episode of 2015. So I suppose people could follow you, Jonathan, on Twitter. You're Snook CA. That's correct. CA is not your middle name, is it? No, it's Canada. Oh, of course it is. It's like the domain, Snook.ca. It's so easy. All these years, I've just figured it out. Harry at CSS Wizardry or you can follow me at Malarkey to ask questions or suggest topics you can message this show on Twitter too at unfinishedbz or you can email me at hehas at unfinished.bz and I'll be back in two weeks because it's bi-weekly with two more fabulous guests because we'll still have some unfinished business And then, you see, if I had some theme music, I could cut in a bit of um, S Club 7. Might be my first choice. (laughs) Yeah, you should get um, a little S Club mashup jingle. Well, I did cut in a little bit of cheeky S Club 7 at the end of an episode with Brendan a few weeks ago. Brilliant. A few episodes ago, which which I'm not really supposed to do, but it was only a few seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully nobody at S Club... They wouldn't listen anyway. Oh, good plug for your workshops there, by the way. We all know how you do them now. Oh, yes. What do you mean? Well, this is what I do. I always get on a Skype call with people at least the day before. That's what, yeah, actually, yeah. If anyone's listening and you want a workshop, that's how it'll go down. Completely bespoke. If we're plugging, if we're plugging and people are still listening to this, I'm going to be at Respond, which is a conference in Sydney. And I'll put a link in the show notes. You're going to be at a rival conference in Melbourne. Yes, I'll be at uh, CSS Conf Australia. They're like a day or two apart. Most conferences are this year. I've got a scenario where I'm flying potentially three countries back-to-back for conferences. Everyone's organising stuff on top of each other this year.
are those three countries in Europe? Because I feel like, you know, three countries in Europe isn't that big of a deal. No, but three talks back to back kind of is. Um, it's not the, it's not the distance. Yeah. It's the, um, yeah, God, imagine if I was doing like New York, Australia, then Venezuela. <laughs> <laughs> As we are plugging, there is a promo code, which is Unfinished Business. We still plugging. Full listen. Yeah, I'm still plugging. Bloody hell, I'm still plugging. It's my podcast. Unfinished Business is the promo code, and people get 50% discount off my workshops. $50. $50 off the workshops, or $100 off uh, the workshop and the conference ticket to respond. Go there. Of course, mine, mine's ideal. My workshop in Melbourne that I'm doing, which I'll put a link in the show notes, is ideal <laughs> for people that are coming to CSS Conf as well. It's just the day before, is it? It is the day before. Just the day before, yeah, yeah. Yeah, why not do a bit of both? So I'm hoping to meet you there for a bit of a flat white or whatever they drink in Australia. It's a nice brioche. Oh, don't. And Sarah Sawedan's going to be there too. Yeah, I've never met Sarah. Me neither. Uh, it'd be cool to meet her. She's got her visa, so she'll be on her way. Are you travelling much this year, John? Uh, I'm not, I have, uh, so far, yeah, just like three or four, um, things lined up. Uh, I've got, and really just in North America, I'm going to be at, uh, BDConf in Nashville, uh, front end design conf in Florida. Um, and then I'll be at CSS DevConf in October, uh, which is going to be on the Queen Mary in, in Long Beach. Well, I cool. saw that announced the other day. That is grabbing the conference on a boat. Oh, they've always picked really good locations. Uh, it's been uh, the first year they did it was in Hawaii. Uh, the second year they did it at the Stanley Hotel in Colorado. The Stanley Hotel was the inspiration for The Shining. They did New Orleans, uh, New Orleans last year, uh, which was a lot of fun. I definitely enjoyed that. And yeah, the Queen Mary this year. So Nashville would be really cool. We went there a couple of years ago, but I'm a big country music fan, so I've always want to go back. To, I want to go back to the CMAs. That's what I want to do. I want to go to like groove out on some country tunes there's a stone silence when i talk about country music well uh, yeah i mean i've I've got nothing to contribute sorry i'm trying to think of any music that comes out of canada rush tv on the radio they were canadian (laughs) weren't they uh yeah we, we have radio here is your radio still in black and white we can't afford color up here things are too far apart color doesn't go that far so where were you? Ottawa's in the middle, isn't it? Uh, more east. We're in the eastern time zone. Like if you know where New York City is, because everybody knows where New York City is, and you pretty much go north, and then maybe a little bit to the left, but it's it's pretty much like kind of straight up from from New York City. It must City. be bloody freezing there at the moment. Oh, it's uh, today's actually quite nice. I think it's only about minus five today. It snowed in England last week, and the whole place just fell apart. It was hilarious. <laughs> We had at least a centimeter of snow, and the schools were closed. Well, I understand. You, you don't have the infrastructure to be able to clean up that kind of mess. Whereas, uh, yeah, I we had, uh, I think, 10 centimeters, uh, 10, 15 uh, yesterday. Um, so that was it was a considerable amount. Certainly not as much as, like, Boston and, and Buffalo and, like, those places have been getting. Thankfully, it's been – the snow has been going below us. Um so, uh, but yeah, I mean, our infrastructure is designed to handle that much snow. My snow banks are probably about a meter and a half tall right now. The UK doesn't have the infrastructure, but we still get snow every single year and every single year it grinds us to a halt. So I'm thinking we should have the infrastructure. It's, it's completely laughable. What's a snow bank? What's a snow bank? <laughs> I realize I got to explain that. Um, so 
uh, when it snows, you have to put the snow somewhere. So you put it like on the side of the road and it piles up and that, that pile of snow at the side of the road is called the snow bank. Right. Okay. Yeah. On Monday it was, uh, I think minus 25 when I left in the morning. Whoa. That just makes your bones ache. Thing is, is I have a heated garage, so I just get into my car, and then when I drive to work, uh, I park in an underground garage. So I could actually like go to work in shorts <laughs> and not be concerned about it. That's brilliant. I'm off to Australia because I'm a right Wendy, and I hate the winter. So I just want to go somewhere warm. So when we got the opportunity of speaking at Respond and putting some workshops together, we we're like, yes, when can we go? So we've literally, we looked at the calendar and we've literally booked the maximum amount of time away that we can. It's like, I can't wait. I cannot wait to get there. It's going to be 35 degrees or something in Perth. And I just want to soak it up like a lizard. Oh God, that'll kill me. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I love heat. No, I'm the opposite. It's a constant battle over the thermostat in our house. Well, I'm looking forward actually just to, because people say, oh, I hate traveling. Oh God, it's such a long journey to Australia. But I am really looking forward to getting on a plane, sitting there with a large gin and tonic and just binge watching TV shows for 23 hours. I just can't wait. God, no, that's the thing I'm dreading the most. I I get really restless. I, If I spend a day without going outside, I really feel it and I start to feel down. So, the, uh, so, like I said, I've never been as far as Australia before, and the, the, the very thought of spending that much time in a tin can is making me a bit, you know, a bit edgy. So, when are you actually leaving, and how long are you staying there? Uh, I'm out there for a week because I've got it's kind of conferency season, or well, it seems to be for me. So I'm all over the place. Yeah, so I fly out around the twenty third, maybe. God, that is late, isn't it? Because then you've only got two days and it's... Oh, jeez, really? And it's the conference, yeah, basically, yeah. What a fascinating podcast this is. Two old farts <laughs> look at their calendars. <laughs>